Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, this is one of the series of our various and sundry forums on science and energy issues, uh, brought to you by the Center for the Study of Science here at Cato, which is uh, what I run. We have Rob Bradley here today. He is a true gentleman and a true scholar in the energy world. He has the pedigree to show for it. Uh, with a BA in Econ from Rollins College in 1977 and a Master's in Econ from University of Houston in 1980, and a PhD in uh, Political Economy from International College in 1986. His dissertation advisor was an obscure figure by the name of Murray Rothbard. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a book based upon his dissertation, actually two books, uh, called Oil, Gas, and Government, the U.S. Experience, uh, in 1996, uh, and uh, he, uh, at that time, was working for a little company in Houston known as Enron, um, and he was there to the end. He was a friend to all with regard to the Enron demise. He stole or purloined or received a case of Enron T-shirts, and you'll know if you're in the know because you have this T-shirt on it and says Enron. And what's it say on it? Integrity. Uh, the four values are rice, uh, respect, integrity, uh, communication, and excellence. Yeah, so you can walk around D.C. with your Enron shirt for respect and excellence and all that good stuff. At any rate, in 1999, he started the Institute for Energy Research, which is, does what its title is, and one of the things it does is keeps uh, keeps the light going and the enlightenment going on libertarian uh, views on uh, energy and markets. And because of his considerable expertise, Rob is here to give us a seminar called A History of Free Market Energy Thought. We'll run about 35 minutes, uh, and then we'll do Q&A, and then uh, Cato is a place where you can get a free lunch. Thank you very much. Someone uh, once said, Milton Friedman, there is a free lunch. Uh, you're, he uh, you're here at this event, and, and Friedman responded, no, it's not a free lunch. I have to listen to you for two hours. But uh, we won't go on two hours. We'll uh, 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 stay within the time limit. But I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank everyone for uh, taking time out of your schedule. I know there's a number of... Uh, uh, individuals that are wa watching this uh, over the uh, internet, and uh, I, I appreciate it. Now I'm going to need to click my slides. What you're looking at now are some of the books I've been uh, involved with. And the title of my talk, as uh, Pat mentioned, is uh, A History of Free Market Energy Thought, and I added the uh, word brief, from William Stanley Jevons to and then the two, uh, I have to get it to the present, and there's probably five or ten people here. I could have put your name on here. I put Marlo Lewis in here. Those of you who know Marlo know he's a great scholar uh, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, uh, like me and a few others. We've been at this for a couple of decades. Uh, and um, uh, Marlo, if you're out there somewhere, uh, a dinner and a concert would be good. Uh, some of you might know that Marlowe is a, uh, a, an excellent uh, mandolin player. But um, on this cover slide, I chose four books that I think are among the more important 
uh, in the history of energy thought from a, um, a pro-market uh, perspective. Uh, Scarcity and Growth from 1963, an early book of resources for the future, uh, where uh, empirically they're challenging the idea of minerals somehow uh, being more scarce than the general basket of goods and services. And we'll talk a lot about that uh, today. Scarcity and growth was a great influence on the late Julian Simon, a senior fellow uh, here at the Cato Institute at the time of his death uh, some years ago. Uh, the second book, and I toted it from Houston, The Ultimate Resource, Julian Simon, published in 19... 81, the peak of uh, oil prices, peak of many inter, inter, uh, mineral prices. And what courage an author would have to have to have at the top of this book, natural resources and energy are getting less scarce. He probably pinned that in 1980, 1981, uh, at the time where the conventional wisdom, the mainstream was very much on the other side. Uh, Oil, Gas, and Government is a book uh, that I wrote, a two-volume treatise looking at the history of oil and gas uh, intervention by government uh, in the United States from the very beginning, uh, 1850s and 60s, uh, through the, uh, uh, the mid-1980s. Uh, uh, and finally, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, a book that came out just last year by Alex Epstein, which really adds a philosophical uh, dimension that's been missing from the energy uh, debate. So these were four books that I uh, thought were particularly important and I wanted to, uh, to mention. Well, first of all, what is a free market energy scholar? Um, uh, I think first, uh, uh, such, a, uh, such an intellectual would reject central planning in favor of free market institutions, private property, voluntary exchange, rule of law, uh, and, and that uh, sort of thing. A second defining characteristic, I would uh, argue, is that the, mar- the free market scholar um, uh, believes in something called resourceship or, or uh, entrepreneurship applied to mineral resources, so-called depleting or exhaustible resources, where the fixity depletion view uh, or paradigm is rejected. A third uh, free market scholar would reject the standard case for public utility regulation of uh, natural gas, electricity, uh, distribution, uh, and transmission. Uh, Those are four areas that are currently Uh, regulated uh, without exception in the states and by the federal government. Uh, uh, And another area is rejecting all the antitrust application to the energy industries. And this is particularly true with the oil industry. Uh, Antitrust law has been more active with oil, with petroleum, uh, you know, beginning with the standard oil case in uh, uh, 1911 but continuing with service stations. Uh, That's uh, the most active area of antitrust law in uh, in history. Um, So um, uh, free market scholars, they look at the historical record, apply theory, and and reject a case for uh, government intervention in the name of competition. And finally, there's a very broad area of free market environmentalism. I think a, a 
key part of this, uh, uh, based on not only physical science, but uh, 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 political economy, is a rejection of climate alarmism and policy uh, activism. Now, there's some free market intellectual traditions that are behind all this. I think it begins with market process economics, uh, uh, also known as Austrian school economics, what I would call real world uh, uh, economics. I think there's numerous applications of this and my treatise, Oil, Gas, and Government, um, um, often applies uh, just basic Austrian uh, school insights into a variety of energy issues and um, uh, I found it to be a very reliable worldview. A public choice economics, extremely important to understand real world government so when you run into examples of so-called market failure, you don't jump uh, to the government solution. You realize there's government failure and not only market failure, uh, and you have to uh, 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 dig a lot more into the so-called solution uh, to the uh, alleged problem. A libertarian legal theory and philosophy, perhaps I should have divided those two, uh, 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 natural rights. Uh, in, in the case of uh, oil and gas uh, deposits, migrant minerals under the ground, the question of first title is very important. And the homestead theory comes into play versus what historically happened, beginning with the rule of capture and going on to uh, government uh, involved uh, correlative rights. Uh, and of course, torts. Uh, and this gets, that's very important for environmental uh, economics. Uh, libertarian historical analysis is very important. Uh, in my book, Oil, Gas, and Government, went through all the regulatory episodes, what really happened, uh, what did reformers want, uh, what did uh, regulators with good intentions want, what actually happened, uh, how much of this intervention really had little common good to do with it, but was just the result of uh, business lobbying, political capitalism, or rent-seeking. Uh, all this is very important to look back at the uh, historical record to assess government intervention uh, in the real world. And through these regulatory episodes, you get a lot of insights over the uh, interrelated relationship of interventionism uh, over time across industry sectors, and lots of insights that, to me, bolster the case for a free market in energy. And finally, uh, and this is an area I'm thinking a lot about, um, Charles Koch published a book called The Science of Success, uh, looking at uh, uh, firm strategies and behavior, and uh, uh, working for a firm that might have epitomized the science of failure, Enron, and Enron very much was a political uh, company, a rent-seeking company, got into a lot of bad habits. I have to believe that there is an overarching worldview of uh, libertarian theory from the different sub-disciplines that can all be part of a science of success, of doing things successfully, sustainably, uh, where there's uh, less rent-seeking, and a natural pro proclivity uh, to a free society. Now, energy economics. Um, uh, as a discipline, um, it was born with a book in 1865 called The Coal Question by uh, William Stanley Jevons. 
I read these books so you don't have to. Um, but uh, this was a fascinating book. It really is the wealth of nations applied to minerals, to uh, energy, because Jevons, uh, in, in a very interesting way, um, uh, looked at uh, mineral resource scarcity. He was very focused on coal. He talked a lot about conservation and usage. And Jevons very clearly understood that renewable energies, which had a 100% market share uh, for most of mankind's history, was not suited for the industrial age, that we had to go to carbon-based energy, uh, uh, coal, uh, later petroleum, natural gas, that it was uh, a very different type energy. It was a very uh, dense, portable, storable energy that could run the machines, whereas the intermittent resources of uh, wind and solar and uh, the limited resources of primitive biomass, you know, burning uh, plants and woody matter, and even falling water, uh, because sometimes there were droughts and you didn't have the falling water, that all those pre-industrial energies were not suited for the industrial age. And uh, intermittency, limited supply, high cost, these are still issues that are uh, with us uh, today. Uh, the, uh, the other key name here, Harold Hotelling in 1931, published the most famous uh, article in the history of uh, mineral resource economics. I'll get to that in a minute. Another big part of energy economics is natural monopoly. In the case for public utility, uh, regulation and the energy industries of uh, natural gas and electricity. A third area, and I mentioned it briefly, the rule of capture uh, uh, as, as far as first title to migrant minerals under the land where you have different property owners, you know, who owns it. The rule of capture was the person that brings it to the surface owns it. Um, and that was perceived as a market failure because everyone was trying to bring the oil to the surface before the other ones. They uh, were drilling too many wells. They were compromising the reservoirs in some ways. And there was just a flood of, flood of oil uh, uh, trying to be stored above ground. And this was perceived as a, uh, a market failure. And economists uh, did a lot of study of this. And out of this came a lot of regulation on the state level call market demand proration to limit supply and get dollar oil. This is all from the uh, 20s and 30s. Uh, finally, energy security. And of course, this uh, became a very big issue uh, in the social cost of oil imports. We hear a lot about the social cost of carbon. Well, back in the beginning in the 70s, uh, your leading economist at Harvard and other places we're uh, estimating the social cost of oil imports for the optimal tariff. There's a whole literature there. Uh, and uh, so this is another area where oil, uh, oil energy is somehow different from all the other goods and services that gave rise to uh, energy economics. I uh, briefly mentioned William Stanley Jevons' The Coal Question. Um, uh, and Harold Hotelling in 1931 had a mathematical proof uh, using uh, calculus that given a fixed supply and uh, constant and certainly growing demand, that the price of that resource would have to go up 
the cost would have to go up, the selling price would have to go up over time. And his theory was that this special premium to this mineral, um, to any mineral, was uh, basically the uh, rate of interest. So there's uh, that minerals go up in price more than the general basket of goods. They have to because it's a fixed supply. Now, major regulatory events pre-70s, and I'm going to mention these very briefly in my, we had wartime planning in World War I, World War II. We had an oil code of fair competition during the New Deal, public utility regulation of gas and electricity, uh, a lot of state-level regulation try, uh, in, the, in the old days, trying to get the, uh, the quantity of oil down to get the price up. We had uh, 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 an oil uh, import fee. Uh, we had an oil quota. We had all this. Uh, but the point of all this is that during all these pre-'70s regulatory episodes, there was really no free market voice. There, was, there were no free market uh, think tanks, no a great scholar at some college or university who is uh, making the case for a free market uh, in energy. Now that changed in the 70s. This might have been before some of you were born. Some of you remember the gasoline lines. How many got stuck in a gasoline line? Okay, a few gray-haired uh, folks. Um, uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, topping our tanks off, not knowing if we were going to have enough gas, uh, you know, for what we needed to do three days from now. It was really a shock to the system. Uh, and out of this came a lot of free market uh, analysis, where the leading free market economists, such as Milton Friedman, was writing about this in his Newsweek columns. Um, and the free market think tanks started uh, really focusing on this. Now, the, the first energy think tank or, or energy resource, a resource, mineral resource think tank, it was Resources for the Future, uh, founded in 1953 uh, here in Washington. And in the 50s and 60s, RFF published a number of very fat treatise-like books looking at all the mineral resources and looking at all the data and basically coming to the conclusion that uh, you know, they're not seeing what Ho Harold Hotelling was telling us we should see. They didn't see a depletion signal. They weren't seeing particularly high uh, prices from the minerals. Um, and so this was a real tradition and a, a great area of scholarship. Now, um, when the 70s hit, uh, uh, you know, politicians, academics, everyone thought that we were running out of resources rather than, uh, that we had a shortage of resources rather than a surplus of regulation. Because the, the reason that we had the energy crisis in the 1970s with not only oil, oil products, but also natural gas, was price controls, pure and simple. The father of the energy crisis of the 70s uh, uh, was Richard Nixon. It was a price control order of August 1971 that went through different phases that uh, put a real constraint on uh, uh, oil prices, and we were actually starting to have shortages before the Arab embargo. There was congressional hearings before, the, the year before the Arab embargo, one on energy shortages and one on energy conservation. The first 
uh, congressional hearing on energy conservation. It was before the Arab embargo. And sure enough, price control shortages, conservation, conservationism, just a whole uh, political agenda uh, in itself. Uh, so the hero of the 70s, or not the hero, the uh, really the anti-hero, but the economists that, that uh, the mainstream turned to at Resources for the Future and uh, in the colleges and universities was Harold Hotelling. Okay, hotelling is right. Uh, we're having, uh, we're seeing the price premium, the user cost that uh, he proved back in 1931. And there was a shell geologist, uh, M. King Hubbard, who, uh, who estimated the peak of oil, peak oil and peak natural gas for the United States uh, and the world. So they became the mainstream. And the idea is there's a fixed glass. You take a sip uh, out of the glass, there's less there. This is the fixity depletion view. And the other view that I'll talk about here in, the, in a minute is there is no glass. Now, at Resources for the Future, a book came out in 1979, and I look at this as a great turn where all of a sudden they're buying into Harold Hotelling. Um, uh, the increase in energy cost to the U.S. consumers has come from the higher cost of producing it from an increase in the cost of using energy now rather than in the future and other reasons. Uh, all herald hoteling. You know, energy uh, minerals are scarce uh, and the price must go, go up. Now, the energy crisis think tanks. Resources for the future, they went left in the 70s and they've gone way left ever since. Uh, 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 Paul Portney built up um, um, RFF in the 1990s and it's just not surprising that they got uh, uh, they accepted climate alarmism and then uh, went hog wild on all the, uh, the uh, economic analysis uh, uh, given uh, climate alarmism, and they're still doing that today. Now, the American Enterprise Institute, they were the free, mar they were the free market voice of the troubled 1970s, as we'll see here in a minute. The Heritage Foundation, established in 1980, got involved, and the Cato Institute from San Francisco they didn't have an energy scholar until the 1990s, but they were publishing uh, some free market analysis by Milton Friedman, Charles Koch, and some others. So there's no free market uh, think tank, um, certainly no free market all energy all the time uh, think tank, but some of the multi-issue free market groups are getting involved in energy. Now, the real hero of energy analysis in the 1970s was um, Edward Mitchell, a business professor, I think from uh, University of Michigan, uh, who uh, had a series, a booklet series, and a program for AEI uh, focused on energy. And they published numerous booklets uh, that were uh, 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 fantastic. And Mitchell himself came up with a term that I really like. I think it applies to energy, but I think it also is going to apply to Obamacare. Gapism. That's when the government sets prices and you have a shortage, so all of a sudden the government has something to do. The government is going to do X, Y, and Z to increase supply over here, and they're going to do X, Y, and Z to lower demand over here. They're not going to deregulate to do all that. No, they're going to construct a new equilibrium uh, uh, to um, address uh, gapism. 
uh, lots of allocation controls, they're gonna manage the shortage. Uh, and we see this a whole lot in the 70s with energy where rather than deregulating, the government was trying to have these all these special programs to increase supply to reduce demand, and we're going to see it uh, uh, with healthcare. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, the the real hero uh, in this period, I guess, in addition to um, uh, uh, Edward Mitchell at AEI, was Julian Simon. Simon's great breakthrough came in a book that uh, uh, people. Uh, uh, don't know about. Actually, it was his scholarly precursor to The Ultimate Resource. The Ultimate Resource was just a popularization book, but Simon's uh, uh, intellectual um, uh, contribution the first time and in, in detail is The Economics of Population Growth, 1977, and The Ultimate Resource in 1981. And the idea that Simon is getting to, uh, and it's a term called resource ship, that I didn't invent, it was uh, uh, used by uh, economists we'll talk about here in a minute, is the idea that we have, the, have all this uh, neutral stuff in the earth and through human ingenuity we turn it into usable resources. The resources might begin as speculative, they might be upgraded to probable, but we uh, do more uh, research and actually they're proven reserves. And now we almost have another category where there's a, a number of wells that have been drilled out there that aren't quite completed. They're ready, you know, you can complete them in a, in a, in a week or two and then start flowing oil, but they're not completed because right now with prices they're not economic. So there's lots of very near supply. You can almost call it a new category of storage uh, with the uh, oil and gas boom in the United States from uh, hydraulic uh, uh, fracturing. Now the ultimate resource, uh, you know, we associate it with Julian Simon, but there was a school of thought called the Institutionalist uh, School of Economics, uh, and they really got the idea of the ultimate resources, uh, uh, a human ingenuity, the ultimate resource, decades before Julian Simon did. Julian Simon really independently discovered and documented in a in a uh, in a very persuasive way, uh, the insights of some institutional economists. For example, in 1941, we have this quote, quotation, incomparably greatest among human resources is knowledge. It is the greatest because it is the mother of all other resources. And this is the key to unlocking the paradox of depletable resources, not depleting, but expanding. Because human ingenuity is not a depleting resource, but an expanding resource. Every insight that we get opens the door for more insights. Uh, so it's a cascading process, just the opposite of uh, depleting. Ludwig von Mises, uh, his, his book, Human Action, uh, to me is easily the greatest work of 20th century economics. He had an amazing a couple of sentences in here where he basically refuted Harold Hotelling. He had to have read Hotelling uh, uh, to have talked about this. Mises is basically saying that minerals are not any different from other goods and services, okay? Now, there is an economics of fixed supply, but that could apply to water in the, you know, a canteen of water in the middle of the, you know, desert. Uh, you know, yeah, but it has nothing to do with minerals. It's just fixed. It's a fixed supply. 
But um, Mises, uh, he had to have read Hotelling. Uh, and and what he, this is what he has to say about resource ship. Every single mine or oil source is exhaustible. Many of them are already exhausted, but the deposits of mineral substances and their exploitation are not characterized by features which would give a particular mark to human action dealing with them. Still, the geographical uh, dispersion of natural resources makes the problems of transportation a particular factor of production costs and makes institutional factors, institutional factors including government, uh, important. So government can certainly create a uh, mineral resource shortage. Um, the ultimate resource also has a predecessor with um, Eric Zimmerman. Uh, resources are not, they become. Knowledge is the mother of all resources. Resources are not in the ground. Resources are in the mind. Um, uh, very, uh, very subtle, but very important. And uh, M.A. Edelman, Maury Edelman, uh, an economist at MIT, mainstream, uh, he very effectively challenged the idea of, of renewable, I mean, of non-renewable resources somehow being different. And he goes uh, so far as to say, quote, the distinction between renewable and non-renewable resources is tenuous and perhaps in the last analysis untenable. So any public policy based on the idea that oil, gas is somehow different because of supply or any other mineral, that's probably going to be a bad public policy. Same thing for a business person, for an entrepreneur. If you think that you, the entrepreneur, producing a mineral, that somehow your prices are going to go up over time, uh, you're, uh, you're mistaken too. And there's been lots of money lost because entrepreneurs thought that uh, oil prices were going higher or high, historically high prices were here to stay. Uh, briefly, F.A. Hayek uh, weighed in on the energy issues uh, a bit. And again, you have the free market economists, uh, Mises, Hayek, and later on Milton Friedman, who they briefly turn their attention to energy and they give you insights, but there's no one economist who can really be called the father of libertarian uh, energy uh, analysis. And um, Hayek talks about conservation here. Uh, uh, our problem is not to preserve the uh, stock of depletable resources in any particular form, but always to maintain it in a form that will make the most desirable contribution to total income. The existence of a particular natural resource merely means that while it lasts, its temporary contribution to our income uh, will help us to create new ones which will similarly assist us uh, in the future. We shouldn't have conservation for conservation's sake, uh, as uh, the um, uh, left of center environmentalists would uh, argue. Now, Cato has a... Uh, um, uh, in the 80, in, uh, beginning in the 1990s, Cato was very much at the forefront of the energy debate. How are we doing on time, Pat? We're okay? Cato was founded in 1977 out in San Francisco. They published a booklet, The Energy Crisis, uh, the next year. And they contracted with me to write a history of oil and gas regulation in uh, 1980, and it took a long time to write and to find a publisher for it, uh, but it all finally uh, came out in the mid-90s. And in 1991, Cato hired a director of natural resource 
studies, or uh, maybe the entry position was a director, I'm not sure, but that was Jerry Taylor, and Jerry in the 1990s uh, uh, and more recently uh, uh, did all sorts of uh, good things here at Cato. Um, I'm going to skip through that a little bit. This is some of the products I've done with Cato. I, I wrote the treatise, and from the treatise, it was easier to write the regular books and to do the policy analysis. That's, I tell people, be patient with me. I have to run the marathon before I can run the sprint. And so far, uh, they've, uh, uh, they have been patient. But here are some of the books published by Cato in the, in the 1990s. Uh, all very important in the energy debate. Of course, Jerry Taylor did a great job of commissioning uh, books by uh, Indor Gokalani, uh, Paul uh, Balanoff, uh, a number of uh, scholars, and, and a, a number of policy and uh, analyses from leading energy scholars on all sorts of energy issues. So uh, Jerry was very effective not only as a writer in a in a spokesperson you know you would want to put jerry on tv on fox news to debate whoever he was quite effective uh, but he did a great job of uh, finding the free market scholars and getting them published through cato and the uh, adjunct scholars that jerry brought on in energy uh, robert michaels from cal state fullerton uh, richard gordon uh, from Penn State, a great energy scholar, uh, Indor Gokhlani, um, uh, and there might have been one or two others that I'm uh, not thinking of, but um, you know, it was sort of a think tank within a think tank and lots of good stuff. Now, uh, in the old days, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jerry Taylor. He's my friend. Sometimes we have disagreements. And uh, the old Jerry Taylor, I want to talk a little bit about him and how he tried to get Rob Bradley fired as an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute, and maybe for some good reason. I'll let you decide. <clears throat> well, the old Jerry was a hardcore libertarian, very good on depletion, pollution, climate change issues, trenchant critic, renewables, nuclear, conservation for its own sake, conservationism. Uh, Jerry was a uh, trenchant critic of FERC regulation, uh, public utility regulation, but also mandatory open access for natural gas and electricity where you uh, have, an, uh, have the commodity deregulated, but that all the interstate gas and electricity transmission facilities have to offer their services at non-discriminatory rates to all comers. So when you have mandatory open access, what you do is you deregulate the commodity and you create an independent marketing trading function where companies like uh, the old uh, Enron Gas Marketing would uh, buy and sell gas and electricity knowing they could get transportation to where it needed to go. Well, I was working at Enron at the time, and I kind of liked this. Uh, that's a picture of me. Can you see me? Uh, energy uh, policy analysis it can really age you. That's uh, one, um, uh, uh, one takeaway from this. But um, you can make a bit of a free market case for this because you're deregulating the commodity. And uh, before mandatory open access, you had the traditional public utility regulated monopolists. 
the electric distributor, gas distributor. So uh, I was working on this, and Jerry was very much on the other side. And uh, Jerry had a meeting with Ed Crane going, you know, this Rob Bradley's not a libertarian on this. You know, he's just a corporate crony, and he shouldn't be an adjunct scholar. And I got a letter from Ed Crane, very polite, but just sort of asking me what my views were and why, and I still had the letter. Fair enough. You know, I wasn't mad at Jerry or Ed. Fair enough. You know, I, I, uh, some groups like the Competitive Enterprise Institute were for this mandatory open access and commodity deregulation. Cato wasn't. There's a bit of a split with, between the, uh, in the free market community. Uh, but because of this, uh, in one of my books, I uh, thank Jerry Taylor for his mentorship and energy issues, and I said, I labeled him the conscience of the free market energy movement. If you deviated, this guy was going to be on you. And it was a, it was a good role, and it was his role. The new Jerry Taylor, uh, uh, just as of the last uh, year or two, uh, has come out for pricing carbon dioxide. It began as a political trade. Let's substitute for all this EPA regulation, every regulation in the name of climate change. Let's get rid of it. Let's replace, replace it with the revenue neutral carbon tax. That, uh, he in, uh, came out for that. A little later on, just within a couple of months, he floated the idea of deficit reduction, a carbon tax uh, for its own sake, taxing bads rather than goods. Uh, uh, but this idea of uh, revenue neutrality uh, uh, is gone. Uh, but the general idea is that Jerry endorses correcting uh, uh, what he sees as a market failure of uh, unregulated CO2 emissions um, uh, and, and, you know, as a bad. So, a critic could say that uh, uh, this gentleman has gone from a libertarian to a Malthusian. Okay. Now, on a, uh, here's a wider question, and this is going to be a bit controversial, but uh, is a carbon tax libertarian uh, uh, from a scholarly, from an intellectual point of view, not only a, uh, a public policy point of view? A carbon tax is a new qualitative tax. It's a brand new tax. Okay, uh, if you're giving the government a brand new uh, source of income, uh, surely the public choice arguments uh, apply. Um, um, that uh, that 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 uh, th this tax will have a political purpose rather than a uh, uh, a pure economic uh, purpose, and it will deviate from uh, whatever is on the blackboards of uh, the MIT economists. But to have a uh, carbon tax here in the U.S., uh, given that it's a global issue, you also have to have border adjustments. That means quotas, tariffs. You need to adjust the tax for the fact that it's regressive, uh, that poor, poor individuals, lower-income individuals, pay a higher uh, percent of their income because of their uh, relative energy usage. So what you have is spiraling intervention and you have uh, uh, government as planner having to make all these, uh, uh, these estimates. And surely this is a, a, a political, real-world matter rather than just a blackboard uh, exercise. And of course, uh, following uh, the work of uh, uh, Chip Knappenberger and Pat Michaels and others, 
I think it's a, it's a weak market failure rationale for this tax. We're not necessarily taxing bads. We could be taxing something that's neutral or even positives. Uh, we're not sure what the externality sign is from increasing atmospheric concentrations of CO2. So the idea that you have to price carbon to me is, uh, uh, is a movement to neo-Malthusianism, you know, uh, nature is optimal, uh, man's influence on climate can't be good, and it has a, a terribly romantic view of government. And William Nordhaus, a Harvard economist, has uh, state, very clearly stated his case for a carbon tax assumes an environmental pope, one world government, uh, perfect knowledge, uh, uh, but in the real world is something else. So, you know, I think in a, in a theoretical discussion, you can be for a carbon tax rather than cap and trade, but uh, I, that has nothing to do with the real, real world. You cannot bring it into the real world. So let me uh, conclude. Uh, free market energy economics is a relatively new subcategory of libertarianism, free market economics. Energy problems in the 70s brought energy into the libertarian free market mainstream. Uh, resources for the futures, 1960s beginning, went south. Uh, AEI stepped up in the problematic 1970s. Cato, Competitive Enterprise Institute, have really stepped up in the 1980s and 90s, the Heritage Foundation too. And the institute that I'm involved with, the Institute for Energy Research, uh, we uh, began a Washington office just about five, six years ago, and we are an all-energy, all-the-time free market think tank doing a lot of interesting uh, ideas. But energy is a commanding height. It's going to be with us a long time. It's a political battlefield where free market scholars must wave the consumer and taxpayer uh, flag. Uh, one more. New frontiers for free market energy scholarship. What do we do now? Uh, we have a huge federal budget crisis. I think there's a great opportunity for huge dollars for the federal government to sell all its carbon-based energy assets. I'm thinking of onshore and offshore uh, lands that are currently producing uh, oil, gas, coal, or could be producing Let's privatize the surface. Let's privatize the subsoil, the mineral rights. This could be an excellent transition uh, to uh, fiscal sanity. I think we need to do a lot of work in that area. Opportunity cost. The many, the tens of billions of dollars spent by private foundations and the government on the climate change issue, for God's sakes, in an emergency transition to fiscal sanity, we need those same tens of billions of dollars to go to human needs. There's going to be, it's going to be a very tough transition uh, for uh, 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 some millions of people uh, in, an, in a new era, era of fiscal policy. And we've got to shame these uh, major private foundations that if they're giving money to climate change, they are hurting uh, uh, individuals uh, in this uh, very painful transition to fiscal ch uh, sanity. FERC, 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 the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, they do all sorts of things. Free market scholars have been way too busy on other areas. We got to come uh, after them on public utility regulation and a lot of things. Same thing on the state level, the state public utility regulation. We need to come up with programs where buyers and sellers enter, enter into long-term contracts, exit contracts from regulation 
to get to a free market uh, uh, situation. So these are four areas that I think we have a lot of work to do and uh, look forward to participating with that. Well, thanks a lot for your attention. Thank you for that excellent and, and reasoned uh, presentation. I'm very, very impressed by it. Uh, we'll take some questions, which means we're not taking speeches. And if you are a known speechifier, uh, you, we are probably going to recognize that and not call on you. There's a guy back there uh, with a green tie. And uh, your affiliation and name, please, that would be you. I'm colorblind. notion that a carbon tax would be a substitute for regulation, given that the most recent proposal from uh, Senator Whitehouse had nothing about offsets, and the fact that Senator Schumer is quoted as saying that the Republicans are going to want a carbon tax because the federal government has been starved for revenues. So if could, <laughs> is, is, is there a public choice explanation for why we're not even seeing a pretense of, of regulatory offset? Uh, uh, yes, and it's very interesting, uh, the idea of revenue-neutral carbon tax, uh, it, it sort of, it's already died with Jerry Taylor, and it's died uh, in, the, in, the, in the political realm. And notice that no environmental groups were buying into this, uh, this, this great trade of a carbon tax for all the other uh, intervention, which would not only be federal with the uh, uh, the power plant rule, but it would be on the state and local level. You would have to come up with, to come up with thousands of interventions that are somehow direct, uh, related to climate change and say we're getting rid of all of these thousands of regulations on the local, state, and federal level in return for this carbon tax. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's very implausible and just in a matter of months it sounds to me, David, like it's, it's died uh, intellectually and politically. Uh, if I could just take a stab at that, <clears throat> here's practically why I think a carbon tax is a non-starter. Uh, the, in 1999, the House of Representatives passed cap and trade uh, in late June. Um, three days after they passed it, the presidential approval index went negative and it stayed there all the way until the 2012 election. The generic congressional ballot switched from Democrat to Republican two weeks later and stayed there until the 2012 election. Um, and in the 2010 election, the Democrats lost 64 seats in the control of the House of Representatives. In that same election, every close race in the Senate, oh, every close race in the House pretty much was lost by a Democrat who voted for cap and trade. In the Senate, every close race was won by a Democrat. So the difference was both houses voted for health care only one of them voted for cap and trade, so it cost him the House. 2014, fast forward to 2014, uh, Mitch McConnell is supposed to have a very close race. He wins by 18 going away because not one coal miner was going to vote, uh, vote for the Democrats. West Virginia, everything with a D on it after it lost, including the Senate seat. Uh, Alaska decided on energy, and Mary Landrieu, is not reelected in energy producing Louisiana. There's a reasonable argument that Obama's EPA policies cost the Democratic Party control of the Senate. 
Now, if you don't think the staffers know that, they know that. So this thing is dead on arrival because it's political suicide. Another question. Sorry for the speech. Um, who's back there? I can't see from, with the lights here. Hey, I'm, I'm Nick Zeiss with the Pan Am Post. Um, and anyway, I'm I'm with the Pan American Post and a few other affiliations. Um, anyway, um, Richard Gordon recently passed away back in January, and he wrote a great blurb for your book, Oil, Gas, and Government. Can you comment on the legacy of a, a little bit more of the mineral aspects, um, which is something that I know is not particularly up your wheel, super up your wheelhouse, but the um, contributions that the mining and mineral mineral guys have really added to this debate in the past. I didn't quite get that last part of that question. Contribution of the mining and minerals guys as opposed to the policy types to to the Well, yeah, R Richard Gordon is one of the one of the great uh, free market scholars and I probably should have a slide uh, just on him. Uh, he was at, at Penn State uh, uh, and he was um, uh, a real expert on coal, and uh, uh, from that he became very involved in uh, a variety of energy issues uh, after the 1970s uh, 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 crisis. Um, there's a group of empiricists, uh, certainly including Gordon, but in the, in the uh, oil, gas, and coal uh, area, uh, who um, uh, understood uh, 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 the, the history of uh, inventories of proved probable reserves, and it's their data collection that uh, is behind uh, a lot of Julian Simon's work and others uh, to show that uh, uh, mineral resources are expanding and not depleting. So Richard Gordon was certainly a, a giant in that regard, and I, I did not know that he, uh, he died. Uh, he an was an adjunct scholar of Cato. Another question? Um, black t-shirt. Name and affiliation, please. U.S. taxpayer. In terms of volume compared to... Hold, hold the mic up. In terms of volume compared to the amount of energy produced, no talk about nuclear energy. Not fit? You know what? Uh, there's a lot of talks. In the Q&A, they say, Rob, you didn't talk about nuclear, and I haven't. Um, and I know there's some different uh, schools of thought on this, but uh, to me, without special government favor, starting in the 1950s, uh, we would not have a nuclear power uh, industry. Uh, I can also say that while uh, stringent government uh, regulation, uh, and nowhere more than here in the United States, has increased nuclear cost, and the uh, the Vogel uh, project is that in Georgia, a uh, huge cost overruns. Uh, it's just another nuclear nightmare we're living through right now, and ratepayers are going to suffer very badly in that state. Um, uh, nuclear, uh, if you look at around the world uh, uh, what the costs are, nuclear power is simply not competitive with fossil fuel 
uh, generated electricity, and that's certainly the case uh, here in the United States, and it's become more so uh, with uh, oil and gas developments of uh, the last uh, decade. Um, so nuclear is really, uh, and certainly, uh, yeah, well, nu nuclear as well as carbon uh, capture and storage from coal plants uh, just do not seem to be the solution, uh, even though a carbon tax would force us uh, in that direction. And a question for my friend I mentioned earlier who has always uh, lambasted the economics of nuclear power. How, how high uh, would a carbon tax need to be to make nuclear power economic? Two more, if we have two more. Um, here. Name and affiliation would be nice. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn Schlosser with the American Council of Engineering Companies. Can you, is this working? Um, I just wondered what the libertarian view of uh, the failure of arbitrage um, between natural gas and oil is. I mean, here we have $3, $4 natural gas as far as the eye can see, and its equivalent in oil is, you know, times six, right? 20 to 30 bucks a barrel. And you look at the uh, 60, 80, 100, 100 plus barrel oil, and there is no arbitrage at the pump between these. What's the libertarian view on the role of government to address that? Um, first of all, uh, I'm not sure, you know, public policy-wise, when you say what is the libertarian view, the, the, the way I like to define libertarianism is you're, you're looking for a voluntary solution before a coercive one. And that's actually a, uh, a definition used by Charles Koch that I've always liked. Uh, in the old days, we, uh, it was like a six-to-one BTU uh, uh, range between oil and gas. And that uh, sort of disappeared a few decades ago uh, for market reasons. Uh, now, if your question is uh, for na about natural gas vehicles and why they aren't uh, competitive with um, uh, traditional uh, conventional oil uh, uh, combustion uh, in the engines, uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a question of uh, the extra cost of conversion for existing facilities, for existing vehicles could be easily $1,500, a loss of trunk space if you put a big natural gas cylinder back there for compressed gas. And for new vehicles, um, uh, the economics aren't working uh, either. The, the big three or the major oil, uh, the major car companies, just uh, uh, the economics have never worked <coughs> for them to offer natural gas vehicles to the uh, general public. And of course, you have the refueling costs. Um, I would offer the, uh, a little bit of a counter, which is where space does not matter, natural gas becomes a very good fuel for, for propulsion. I don't think it's any accident that Burlington Northern Santa Fe is. You've got to understand how, much, how, much, how many goods move through this country by rail. It's a huge amount. And so BNSF is building essentially tenders uh, in, their, uh, in their engine braces to run on natural gas. But it would be a let the market decide. Good enough. 
Uh, one more back here. You're the end. You're the caboose. Yeah, Leon Sha from Quito. <clears throat> My question is, uh, I wonder, uh, what is the expectation on the solar energy in the future? Thank you. Uh, perennially uh, non-competitive. I think the commonsensical way to understand why solar uh, can never compete uh, on grid. Now, off grid is a starter energy in the middle of nowhere. A so solar panel is a way to go. So, solar is actually the bridge fuel to fossil fuels rather than the other way around, as we sometimes uh, uh, hear about it. But think of it as this uh, very dilute flow from the sun versus the sun's work over millions <coughs> of years that's embedded in fossil fuels. That's good. Uh, it's time for a free lunch. I don't know whether it's down here as a stand-up or upstairs, but the people outside the door will sure tell you where to go, or else I'll find out for you. Thank you for coming. Thank you.